With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I can hear you. <laughs> you European travelers, while I'm going to uh, Baltimore in the summer. Ooh. Well, I'm going to Fayetteville, Arkansas on Friday, so... Oh, goodness. The um, Fulbright Association is having an alumni conference, Building building Bridges Through Exchange. For a moment, I thought you said building bitches. Well, no, my bitches are already built. (laughs) Well, by having the Fulbright alumni thing in Arkansas, you're increasing the average IQ by about 100 points. Mike over here. Yeah, he's really f***ing loud tonight. <laughs> Welcome to the Let's Get Otis podcast. <laughs> I would think it'd get more hits than ever before. Let's listen to Pussy. No, no. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, start your engines. Welcome, welcome to the Let's Get Weird Sports Podcast, as we have actually made this a somewhat regular one. We recorded one of these about two weeks ago, and we're back. Uh, of course, I am Travis Miller, tmillandhammerandrails.com, and with me as always is Paul Banks from the Sports Bank in Chicago. How are you tonight, Paul? Doing good, man. I feel like we're really getting, to the, getting into the flow now with this. Oh, yes. Uh, I know right now... It is pretty much the off-season. Uh, we don't have a whole lot left to cover for Purdue sports pretty much at all, at least until the NBA draft with Carson Edwards. It's the time for just some off-season shenanigans. You know it's the off-season when, about a week ago, I wrote about West Bromwich Albion having a boiler as their mascot. And I'm sorry, for loose tie-ins to the English championship to Purdue sports... Yeah, it's, we're definitely just out of topics right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know the feeling. They play in the championship, trying to return to the premiership. Oh, the equalizer! West, the baggies are level! <laughs> so we, we won't be talking about cha- English championship football tonight, but what we will be talking about is what is always going on here in the state of Indiana during the month of May, and it is the Indianapolis 500. This is an event that I grew up adoring. I did not get to attend it for the first time until 2004 when I was an adult, mostly because my parents were always like, no, it's too expensive. No, I don't want to deal with the traffic. But I am of the era that it was always blacked out on local television So my grandparents, who had a pool at their house, would always have a big pool party during race day, and we would go over there, we would cook out, the adults would be drinking, the kids would be in the pool, and it would just be a general good time. It's Memorial Day weekend, it's the first time we definitely have some pretty good weather, 
and was always a lot of fun and it always centered around the race. Then as an adult, finally getting to go to the race in 2004, um, nearly got killed. <laughs> but we'll get in, we'll get into that later is, uh, well, why don't you, why don't you tell us some of your experience here with the Indy 500 and why you wanted to make this the topic for the let's get weird podcast. Well, this I'll be going again, and this will be my fourth. Uh, my first one was I had the full-on infield experience in 2007, and I, I it was just people watching, really. I didn't really get that much into the race. I wrote it up. It was one of the most popular posts ever on my website. Um, I've done a couple more. Um, I did one about going to the Little 500 and how we couldn't get in for reasons that we'll get into. And, and, and that, that is the that is the little five hundred the uh, sprint car race in Anderson nearby here, not the uh, ooh we're a bunch of IU frat boys riding bicycles ah little five hundred yes if if you're a big fan of the movie Breaking Away sorry we're not covering that tonight and then that same trip uh, we had some some shenanigans in Broad Ripple. And that ended up also being a popular post, so it made it into my book. And I actually have two chapters, but like maybe four subsections in my book on the Indy 500, which a lot who people who have read it seem to enjoy it. So that'll kind of jog my memory on some of the things that we experienced. And you, you mentioned people watching, and that is one of the most fun aspects about the 500 itself. People in one venue with just endless possibilities because unlike most sporting events out there where you have strict security and what you can bring in and you need to have a clear bag or anything events at the indianapolis motor speedway you can bring in your own food and your own booze you are restricted to a certain size of cooler but no matter what Alcohol is your choice. As long as you can fit it into that cooler, you can bring in as much of it as you please. And that is what people do. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I, I saw people making clamps out of Keystone Light, crushed Keystone Light beer cans. <laughs> I go with a friend every year now, and he's been doing this as long as I've been alive. I mean, his family... They've had these tickets, they kind of rotate, it's gone on for decades. But one thing that always happens on our, it's a multi-mile walk to the venue. We park uh, far away in a residential subdivision, and we always get to this creek, and it's like, let's see if the shopping cart is in the creek this year or not. That, that, it's probably Little Eagle Creek, which part of the creek actually flows underneath the uh, track which is pretty pretty cool. And then I think I know the creek that you're talking about because where I usually park, uh, I come from the east and go down 16th Street. And one of the best places that I have actually found to park, I'm not kidding, is the Club Venus Strip Club about a mile east of the venue. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's a, strip clubs are like a reoccurring theme with all this. There was... um. There was one like pretty much adjacent to the track in Anderson for the Little 500, and I heard all about the classy chassis in Indianapolis. <laughs> but uh, but Club Venus is always, I mean, I've never had a problem getting there. They're usually pretty affordable. It's about, I think when I first parked there, it was like 10 bucks, 
for less than a mile from the track. And the best part about it is, is they're east of the track. And since I need to go east to go to my house, it's a quick out and you're usually home pretty fast out after the race is done and you don't have to fight as much traffic getting out. So uh, Club Venus, nice parking. They keep an eye on it. The girls are very friendly and taking your money. I mean, well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm getting the cutoff sign there from my wife is just the, you know, you need to stop right now. Well, one last thing, though. When you pay for parking there, do you pay in all singles? <laughs> no, I'm a high roller. I go with the tin right there. Just be like, bam. <laughs> Making it rain. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I suppose I could pay with a uh, roll of quarters and make it hail, but. But that would just be bad for all involved. Yes, exactly. We're not in Canada, so. <laughs> but anyway, you know, that's where the people watching really begins is after you park. And then it's just a long trot along 16th Street. You go underneath some railroad tracks as you officially enter Speedway. Uh, I've got the map up here. It is officially Little Eagle Creek. I believe every time that I've been to the race, and I've been to at least six or seven by now, there is always a line of people peeing into the creek before the race. That yes, that is definitely a, a tradition. As Jim, a tradition unlike any other, as Jim Nance would say. I also see um, as you get closer to the track, there's a bunch of dudes, probably younger. They're holding up um, signs with numbers, like they're judging in a competition, like a figure skating thing or something. But I think you can kind of guess what they're judging. Or at least what I assume. And I think that that's usually at Mike's Speedway Lounge, which is right up a hill right before you get to the railroad tracks. And I, I think there's been other substances imbibed there as well, uh, judge, judging by odor in the air, I, I shall say. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I can't wait. It's going to be here before you know it. Uh, but most of the time that I've been, I usually like sitting in the South Vista. I've tried sitting in... I've tried sitting in the infield, and it's it's just not my thing. I I prefer the I prefer sitting in the stands and actually watching some of the race. But I know the most legendary part of the infield is you have the infield, and then you have the snake pit. Um, tell us what the snake pit is exactly. The snake pit has actually been a little bit more corporate. The new snake pit started in 2012, and now it is sponsored by Coors Light. And it's basically a concert going on during the race. Uh, so people that go here, they're not really there for the race. They get in, they can watch it uh, from the inside spectator mounds. Because that's the other thing is you can get a general admission ticket for like 25 30 bucks on race day. And if you know what you're doing, you can get a general admission ticket and then just go to sometimes they have some of the more empty seats. Now, more recently, all the seats have been actually sold out. But uh, the Snake Pit has about 30,000 seats. It sells out separately from the general admission seats, and they encourage you to get there early at 7 a.m., and then they just have electronic dance music for seven hours, which this sounds like my own personal hell. <laughs> I mean, this year they actually have Skrillex performing, and to me, Skrillex sounds like somebody taking a power grinder to a guitar. Yeah, you know, electronica dance music doesn't really fit with your your core demo here for the Indy 500. 
this is a knockoff of the more famous snake pit in the 70s and 80s where it was pretty much every form of debauchery known to man. Well, that actually segues pretty well to um, to the reading I'm going to do, which is my infield experience. And um, I guess we'll just let the censors deal with what needs to get cut gets cut, I guess, right? Right. Yeah, actually, there's no swear words here, so that's good. All right, this is on page 54 of my book, No, I Can't Get You Free Tickets, Lessons Learned from a Life in the Sports Media Industry. While patrolling the infield like Ryan Sandberg, numerous people left an impression on me. A military bomb at 6 a.m. accompanies the opening of the gates. It's also the same time one must leave to beat the traffic and get a good infield spot for the 1 o'clock starting time. Why they open all six lanes of thoroughfare on the way out, but only use three on the way in is beyond reason. Also beyond reason is the purchase of 16 cases of Keystone Light, which I see transported in wagons by college kids. Later, there's crushed beer cans serving as clamps, affixing a chart of today's drivers to the inner fence. I've also seen bush light in old Milwaukee cans placed on the ground in a pattern to spell tits and boobs. Other highlights include an individual who manscaped the number 500 into his chest hair, and numerous mullets, rat tails, Zubay's outfits, and checkered pants. Yes, it is still 1984 for a large number of people that go to the race. And then I hear about past racing fans who constructed a stripper pole in their tailgating area. Not a temporary makeshift pole, mind you, but a cemented into the ground with secrete Stripper pole right in front of someone's trailer. A triple wide, to be exact. <laughs> well, that's part of the beauty of the the track being where it is within the city of Indianapolis. You have people's houses literally across the street on Georgetown Road. These are people that have lived there forever. They They make a little bit of extra money on parking cars there. And they know that they're not going to be able to get anywhere on race day. So they either A, go to the race themselves, or B, it's an excuse for them to party, too. Yeah, I mean, that's really kind of what this is about at the end of the day. I mean, people talk about declining interest in the Indy 500, but for most people, it's a party. Uh, For me, it's the people watching. Um, And also, I like the spectacle that that comes before the race as well. All the, the pomp and circumstance, the breads and circuses. Yes, and th- that is, that's also where we have our Purdue connection because the Purdue All-American Marching Band always performs as part of the pre-race festivities on the, on the track. They've long been a l- very large part of the festivities there, and it's just great to see them out there. It's kind of... I'm not sure if the graduating seniors that just graduated in May, it's kind of their final thing since it's so close to graduation. They are pretty much a race day fixture, unlike some of the previous race day fixtures. Like, unfortunately, Jim Neighbors has since passed away, and I'm not sure who of the Holman family is doing the uh, call to start engines now, but the Purdue All-American Marching Band will never die. And so they're going to be there forever. And I'm not sure exactly how long they have been there. Well, yeah, that's now the Chicago connection here. I don't know who's doing back home again in Indiana this year, but the last time I went, it was Jim Corneliuson, Corneliuson, um, the famous Blackhawks anthem singer. And he has kind of become 
the main anthem singer at all sporting events, kind of in the city or maybe in the state in the Midwest now. Yeah, and oh, this is how long that the Purdue All-American Marching Band has been host, uh, the host band of the race since 1919. Uh, so this will be the 100th anniversary of Purdue's first exper- first appearance there. Now, granted, they did not appear there during the four years during World War II, but that's pretty cool that it's been 100 years since Purdue has been a part of the race, and they continue to be a part of the race. Yeah, take that, IU. <laughs> yeah, Hoosiers, where's your represent? Where's your where where are you, IU, in all this? Well, that is probably when you'll see a Damon Bailey jersey with a 1988 Notre Dame National Champions hat. <laughs> That's always fun to see, like, the crazy outdated shirts and everything. Uh, yes, and you you mentioned the mullets. I'm reminded of another time that I was there. Part of the roulette of the race is you don't really know what the weather is going to be. The very first race in 2004 that I went to, I say I nearly died because that was a race that was delayed due to rain they got in they did not finish the race they were they had to stop it uh early and i believe dario franchiti won with a rain shortened race and then this is when we got on the buses to go back downtown because they used to have a thing where you could park downtown and then they would bus you to the track and you'd just pay one flat rate so we get bused downtown and at the time the pacers were playing the Detroit Pistons in the Eastern Conference Finals immediately afterward. And we get downtown as a hellacious thunderstorm just cuts loose, and then suddenly the tornado sirens start going off, and you had an actual tornado threatening to hit both the Speedway and downtown Indianapolis. (laughs) Right about the time that we get into Champs at Circle Center Mall so we can have some dinner and watch the game that was going on, over at Baker's Life Fieldhouse, because obviously that was sold out as well. So just an absolutely crazy afternoon with horrifically bad weather. And there was some real danger that a tornado was going to wipe out quite a few number of people there. Yeah, every year that I've been, it's been extremely hot. And that has been, but I've been told that it's also been extremely cold. Like that's the weird thing about Memorial Day weekend in the Midwest. You could have... Yeah, you could have your EF5 tornado. You can have, you know, a heat index of 100. It could be 45 and rain and anything in between. Ah, yes. I believe that would have been the 1992 Indianapolis 500. You mentioned that. Where Roberto Guerrero qualified on the pole. And not only did he qualify on the pole, I believe he set a new track record in qualifying. He was one of the favorites to win the race. And during it was so cold on race day that the drivers were moving back and forth on the parade lap to get their tires warmed up for racing speed. Guerrero spun his car around and hit the wall inside before the race even started. So the fastest qualifier to that point in Indy 500 history didn't even race a single lap because he wrecked during the parade lap. That is just like wrecking during a parade lap is is like getting hurt during the pregame introductions. Yeah, and not it wasn't even the pace lap where they were trying to get up to speed. No, it was the parade lap where they're just forming up the three rows the 11 rows of 3. So what are some of you what are your some of your favorite traditions on this weekend or some of your favorite race day traditions? 
Uh, well, it's been a couple of years since I've actually been to the race. Uh, I think the last one I went to was the 99th running uh, a couple of, se- couple of years ago. And then my son's not quite old enough to go yet. He's just now six. You know, we'll probably look at maybe taking him next year. Uh, just a lot of the people watching. I like to go and I usually sit in the South Vista where you get a good view of the cars coming out of turn one and then going into turn two in the back stretch. And one of the other things that stands out is just seeing how much people can drink, and especially if it is really hot. Uh, the one of the it seems to be a tradition is as the steps are coming down there to the sections, people will stack their empty cans next to them if they happen to be sitting on the end. And there was one guy that had an incredibly glassy-eyed look one year. It had to be 250, bearded, gut hanging out underneath the white shirt. He had at least eight tall boys <laughs> stacked <laughs> to him. And this was a year that it was probably 85, 90 degrees, pretty humid. He was, you could tell the heat and the booze was getting to him because it looked like he was about to tumble down 15 rows, possibly roll through the fence and onto the track. Dude, a guy that size could do a lot of damage. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> drink responsibly people because that is one thing i always see every year is uh the emts and the medics really do get a lot of work and a lot of that is uh from people who brought their conditions kind of on themselves right i mean and it isn't even the drinking too much it's the drinking too much and not being prepared for the heat potentially and then you got all these people so the body heat you know it I'm kind of glad that we always sit in the grandstand because I can't imagine like baking out in the sun all day. Oh, that's the way I've done it. That's fantastic. That's part of the fun of it is as long as you've got some sunscreen, you got a cold beverage. It's great. Bring your own lunch. <laughs> I think I'd be walking around with those hats that has a, um, a shade thing connected to the top of it. <laughs> and I know the other, the other thing that I've done is, of course, you could bring your own alcohol, but you can also purchase alcohol there. And I think I was required by law because I, I usually bring a couple of uh, couple of the local indie breweries. Some of them will even have their own specialty race beers. Uh, I know Beer Brewery and Flat 12 here in town will actually brew their own. One of them was even in, in, uh, in conjunction with uh, driver James Hinchcliffe. He has worked with Flat Trail Brewery to where they do a Hinchtown Hammer Down, which is quite tasty. You are required by law to purchase at least one of the Budweiser America cans because it's Memorial Day weekend. And you you talk about the pomp and the circumstance. They, the let's go patriotism, let's go America is fully on display at the Indy 500. Yes, I actually wrote a post on that last year for my political blog, and I listed down, I listed like everything that happens in order before the race actually starts. If you, if you would indulge me, I have it in front of me. Oh yes, please do. All right. So first, you have a rendition of "America the Beautiful." Then, then came a brief speech on the meaning and importance of Memorial Day, playing of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, a prayer. Or what's the other word for prayer at a sporting event? Benediction. A benediction. God bless America, playing that. 
the Armed Forces promotional video, then the National Anthem with the B-2 stealth bomber flyover, then back home again in Indiana, then the race starts. So you've got your America, you've got your jingoism, you've got your, your patriotism boner in full effect right there. Let's also not forget the trucks that drive around with the American flags trailing out of the truck bed that are actually on the track before many of these things actually occur, too. Let's also remember that technically, according to, I don't know if it's according to the Constitution, but according to the flag code, you are not actually supposed to make a piece of clothing out of the American flag, but... Um, we see that rule being violated in full effect everywhere. Oh, goodness, yes. <laughs> that, to me, that's like the real, um, that's like, it's just like a, a culture shock for me from where I live and dwell most of the time to have, it's just so in your face. Well, that's because you're in the uh, liberal bastion of Chicago where here in Indiana, we're in the real America. That's right. You don't like it, you can get out. <laughs> they took your jobs. <laughs> I just saw more of that, though, at Anderson. Like, that's where they had, like, the big trucks with the murals painted with, like, this bald eagle that looks really mean. You might see some uh, uh, Civil War second place flags as well, is the polite <laughs> way of saying it. There's a bar, a biker bar, and, like, a craft store. It's an hour west of Naperville, which is an hour west of Chicago. So here, in the land of Lincoln, in northern Illinois, this biker bar had the Confederate flag flying until there was enough outrage that people tell them to take it down until, like, last year. So, uh, it, It's not hard to believe here, because you'll see plenty of Confederate flags at the Indy 500 as well. Yeah, uh, people tend to forget that Indiana was a Union state. Well, it's technically the land of Lincoln, too, because he was born in uh, Indiana. Juan, right? just chimed in, Juan just chimed in on our chat and just said, Indiana is the South's middle finger. <laughs> Which, having lived here almost 40 years, he's not wrong, now that I think about it. It's, he's, he's, he's absolutely right, metaphorically, and almost literally, because... You look at, like, the Mason-Dixon line, and you're like, hey, what's this um, Confederate state doing up here? <laughs> well, that was one of my all-time favorite Onion articles. South puts rising again off another year. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to the 500, I know it also amazes me how much the community of Indianapolis does get behind it, because it's obviously the premier event on the calendar here. You know, you'll have Colts games, you'll have Pacer games, but the 500, it dwarfs even, I mean, it dwarfs the Brickyard right now because the Brickyard's kind of sad with how low the attendance has been of late. And I've only been to the Brickyard 400 once, but the 500, it's still going pretty strong attendance-wise. I know that the 100th running a few years ago sold out, which was a huge, huge deal at the time. And then this year will be the 103rd running, and I know they're still expecting a pretty good crowd, and as always. And 
it's all the other events that go around it. You have the parade that goes on on the Saturday before the race with all the drivers there. And I remember marching in it in high school and marching band. You have the Indianapolis mini marathon where part of the 13 mile race takes place on the track itself, which is a pretty cool aspect of it. And yeah, that I've, I've heard about that. That is badass. That's awesome. I want to do that someday. Yeah, it's a half marathon that starts in downtown Indianapolis and essentially runs out to Speedway. You do a lap of the track, and then you go back to downtown Indianapolis for the 13 miles. And got a lot of friends that have done it. I've never been able to do it because of all my foot problems over the years. And now that I've had two surgeries in the last year, uh, I'm going to kiss that goodbye. <laughs> but Did you make sure to go see Homer Simpson's angel and rub the foot for luck before your surgery? <laughs> Like no. Principal Skinner's mother did. <laughs> That's probably the other weird part I would say that is about the race is it has had a local live TV broadcast blackout pretty much in perpetuity. And that is just so, it's always been so strange to me because growing up the race sold out every year, yet we could never watch it on TV. And you almost had to have connections. Like, I, growing up in Kokomo, I was right on the edge of being able to get the South Bend ABC station, which they were not part of the blackout. It was only the local Indianapolis ABC station. And since Kokomo, that was our ABC station, we couldn't watch the race. I don't – how does that work? Um, does Is it like a concentric circle around it, or is it – like a gerrymandered kind of weird borders to it. I think it's just the local, uh, the local broadcast, which for years was ABC. And I don't even know how it carries over this year. Cause I know it's on NBC this year for the first time in decades. Uh, the local broadcast was just not carried on, uh, channel six in Indianapolis, the ABC affiliate. So the only way you could watch it would be if you had a satellite dish essentially, and you could get another ABC affiliate. Yeah, kudos to NBC. It's, um, I mean, I know no one likes talking about NBC as much as NBC does, but um, they really have, like they say, this is the month of champions because you have the Premier League championship being crowned on their network. You have the Kentucky Derby. You have the Indy 500, uh, the Stanley Cup. You know, like we were saying that we've got this like downtime in our in our calendars right now, but there is a lot going on with it. And the Indy 500 attendance, at least attendance-wise, is as big as it gets. Oh, the only one there that local blackout was lifted was 2016, which was the 100th running of the race. What about NASCAR? Does that get blacked out? Uh, no, na- it used to be, but uh, now they don't do it anymore. And they would do. They used to broadcast it right up to the actual start of the race. Like, we would get on TV, the back home again in Indiana and everything else. Then they would cut it off. So, for years, I always had to imagine what the race was like because it would be played on the radio over the speakers at my grandparents' pool party. And then what, what was it like when you did imagine it in your head? You know, you, you, get, to, you get a good part of it, and it was just one of the the last old school sporting events where you can't imagine I, I would probably equate it to the, you know, old timey. Oh, I'm going to listen to the baseball game on the radio broadcast while working on the car or something. 
where or like in uh, in Eight Men Out when Rothstein goes and he sees like the little board where they they have like a man moving up like it's a board game on the base path that kind of thing. Yeah, it was kind of like that. They would publish in the newspapers grids where you could keep track of where everybody was running. And it was just it was just such a throwback to those old days because you have this anachronism where it would not be broadcast here. Well, it is actually kind of hard to follow in person unless you have like the radio broadcast in your ear. I mean, they do a good job in the grandstand of telling you who's leading, but you don't it's a weird kind of contradiction in that you're watching these cars go around, but you don't really know who's winning unless you, you, you're also looking at your scoreboard watching or you've got the radio going at the same time. And you always need the radio because it's really friggin' loud, too. Oh, my God, yes. Because uh, when, when they come zipping by, and then I think the NASCAR cars are a little bit louder, uh, probably because they're slower, but... When you have the whole field zipping by, you're not hearing anything. Yeah, it, it's it's an amp that goes up to 11. <laughs> and that that's another thing that my only Brickyard year was the year that they had all the tire problems. The tires kept getting shredded because of the new <laughs> paving that they had. They were having to pit about every 15 to 20 laps. Nobody was passing anybody. So it was the world's fastest parade, and then by the time my wife and I left, we were covered in just fine rubber ash, essentially, because we were sitting up in one of the turns. Well, at least at least you weren't Maude Flanders. <laughs> you didn't get taken out by a tire too soon. Yes, I made a joke about a fictional dead cartoon character. You can make the joke about that, but unfortunately, that actually happened at the eighty, like the eighty-seven or the eighty-eight race, where somebody hit a tire and it went into the stands and killed somebody. That's real. Yes, it actually happened at the nineteen. I think it was the nineteen eighty-eight race, uh, where a tire had come off a car and they were coming around, and the guy hit it. I think it might have even been Guerrero, no less. Went the uh, the tire went flying into the car and hit somebody on the top row of the stand and killed them. My God, that is awful. Yeah, it's, that's horrible. Uh, I didn't even know that. Luke accidents, really. Well, I mean, she was killed by a t-shirt cannon. By t-shirt, but I no, honest, I wouldn't have if I actually knew that that happened. I probably wouldn't have brought that up and made that joke. So. Well, see, there you go. You, you're there for the people watching and the spectacle. I'm there because I actually kind of like the racing. It's kind of fun. And, you know, this probably makes me less of an American, but I prefer IndyCar to NASCAR, to be quite honest. I don't know. I've covered some NASCAR races, and I, I don't know. I've kind of lost interest in it as star power has gone down. But I don't know. I might be with you on that. I might prefer IndyCar. I just think it's a lot more exciting of a race. They, there's a lot more passing. If you want to get technical, the wrecks are a lot more spectacular. There. Now you're being really American. Yeah, and it, it's so strange because the wrecks are spectacular, and I can't imagine crashing into a wall at 230 miles an hour. And fortunately, most of the time, I think every race that I've been to, these guys, you know, these guys have walked away unscathed. But I just can't imagine how pantsingly frightening that would be to lose control 
at 230 miles an hour, and you just have that split second of, well, I am essentially mass in a physics equation now. Yeah, pantsingly is always a good adverb, and it's very appropriate here. I mean, you got to hand these guys; they've got these guys have balls of steel to do this. And uh, I think the most exciting one that I've been to was the year that uh, Hildebrand, J.R. Hildebrand, was leading the race on the final lap, and all he needed to do was get through turn four, and he was going to win the race. And I think he was a rookie, even. And uh, he didn't. He didn't get through turn four. He hit the wall in turn four, and there was a moment of. Was he going to? Was what was left of his car with him in it going to slide across the the start finish line before second place got up to him and passed him? And Dan Weldon was able to pass him and win the race when Hildebrand just slid across in second place. Do you watch Formula One at all? Not really. No. Well, then I'd really be a liberal uh, elitist snob if I said I like. Formula One better than other types of racing, but to be honest, I don't. I don't either. I I don't watch F one and IndyCar is pretty much. It's closer to that, right? Yeah, and I know F one is a bit of a four letter word here in in the city of Indianapolis. After F one essentially gave the Motor Speedway in the city of Indianapolis the finger. What happened? Well, the U.S. Grand Prix used to be here, and they just kind of like, we're F1 and we expect more. And they pulled out. And this was after they had uh, one of the U.S. Grand Prix that was at the track was raced with only six cars because the others were having tire problems. They wouldn't accommodate the course to fix their tire issues that they were having that weekend because they used uh, not only the road course, but part of the main oval and the main oval in turn one there was the only banked turn in all of F1, and it was giving them massive issues with the tires, causing them to blow. So I think it was the Michelin tires had to pull out, and then the ones on Firestones, or either Firestones or Goodyears, were able to race. So it was only six cars racing because the others were like, no, we can't safely race with our tires, and you're not doing anything to let us race. I see. Yeah, it, it was it was just a gigantic mess, and then F1 pulled out, kind of blaming IMS for that, and it was it was a uh, acrimonious divorce, if you will. Well, I could see I could be very contentious. Yeah, and they the F1 crowd always just felt like they were kind of better than the Speedway, if you will. People in in the tracks like, well, fine, go ahead and go. <laughs> And then where where is the U.S. Grand Prix now? I believe it is at a uh, purpose-built racetrack outside of Austin, Texas. Well, most people think of Monaco when they think of that sport anyway. And there's certainly far, there's not many places on this earth that are more snobby and elitist than that, than Monaco. And I know that, uh, I know that Monaco is the same weekend as the 500 as well. And probably the last one that we can talk about here before we we cut it out here is I've always had a good respect for the drivers that have attempted to do the double where they will race at the Indy 500 and then get in a plane, fly to North Carolina and yeah. race the Coca-Cola 600 that night. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I In fact, I, that is one thing, the years that I haven't gone, I do like 
get up early, watch the Monaco Grand Prix, watch Indy 500, watch the Coca-Cola 600. It really is the greatest day in racing. And I also commend, uh, had the cojones to do that, to try that. Uh, only, only four doubles have actually attempted it. You've had John Andretti, Robbie Gordon, Tony Stewart, and Kurt Busch. Kurt Busch doing the last doing it the last time in 2014. The only one that has, uh, well, Tony Stewart had the best result. He finished sixth at Indy and third at Charlotte doing all 1,100 miles in one day, which I can't imagine doing that because I don't like driving 1,100 miles in my car on the interstate. (laughs) (laughs) You've never driven from Chicago to I-57 to an Illini game through rush hour in Chicago to see them lose in a well in either sport now by 40 points. Now that's driving. Uh, I think that anybody who does the double, they should have to they should be forced to drive uh, during rush hour on I-95 in Miami, which is the worst traffic ever. Didn't Danica try it or talk about trying it or something? I think think she talked about trying it i know the last year was her final year uh she did the 500 one more time just to do it after she had retired from nascar but uh i don't think she ever officially attempted it uh after she went over to nascar well one lap down is one of my all-time favorite <laughs> racing uh quips epigrams whatever you want to call it uh she was she was always really good in the 500. Uh, I know she led it one year. She's the only woman to ever lead it. She always was running really, really well, except for the one year. Uh, there was one year where she was running extremely well, and she got wrecked out by one of the Penske drivers, and she went storming down pit lane like she was going to kick his ass. <laughs> oh, I remember that, yeah. And she, she kind of had a beef about it. It's like for all the – and I'm not going to deride her one bit for her NASCAR – skills or her Indy 500 skills, mostly because there is no way in hell I could do what she did. So none of this, oh, well, she's a woman. Of course she can't drive. No, she can drive better than 99% of men out there. I'm sorry. She can drive better than 99.999% of people on this earth. I, I mean, the reason I think people make fun of her is because, you know, she's got all these endorsements and all this fame for finishing in 27th place a lot. Get money. I tip my cap to her. Yeah, I mean, you know, Anna Kornikova finished in the semifinals or, you know, the quarterfinals of a lot of tennis tournaments. But if she got paid for all the stuff she got paid for, I mean, who among us would turn that down? We live in a world where there are Instagram influencers and YouTube personalities. So at least Danica is actually doing something. Exactly. Now, please remove yourself from my lawn. (laughs) <laughs> so on that note we could probably start to wrap this one up and uh what do you what do we have for our next topic on the let's get weird sports podcast i think we're gonna do fleetwood moses walker versus cap anson oh going back to old school baseball that's always good because um uh fleet fleet walker is definitely our hero and Cap Anson is our villain, but um, there, there's a lot to cover with uh, when you kind of put both of these guys up against it. Because um, I, I'm reading this book. Um, the guy who did the foreword for my book, a man named Jimmy Greenfield, wrote a book called 
um, a hundred things that every Cubs fan must know and see and do before they die. Visit Cap Anson's grave is one of them. And when I read about all the records he set and everything, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And then with Fleet Walker, I saw the drunk history on him. I've listened to the dollop and... You know, I kind of think that maybe our biggest strength in these in uh, Let's Get Weird Sports comes from old-timey baseball. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. As long as you can dance around the just blatant racism that was involved in old-timey baseball, you got a lot of good stories there. I mean, who can top the rube? Right. I mean, and then this one will be all about that, which... So you just kind of go straight forward. That's kind of how it was because this is why Jackie Rob. This is why it took so long for Jackie Robinson to break the color barrier because of what happened uh, with Fleet Walker. Yeah, and it's it's ridiculous that it's happened that way. But you, I mean, it is. It happened, unfortunately, and like you said, there's all kinds of good stories there with old timey baseball and. It just, I think that's why there's so much lore with the sport of baseball and why I enjoy it because it's been around forever. I mean, you have the Cincinnati Reds are celebrating their 150th season this year. So, wow. Yeah, you know, baseball is not my favorite sport, um, but I do think that baseball books make the best sports books, and I think baseball movies make the best uh, sports movies. And I think it is because of that, like you said. And, and it's that just familial connection. Like, my grandfather took me to Wrigley Field in 1988 before they had finished installing the lights. And now I've been able to take my son named after him. And so it's just really cool that, oh, hey, Wrigley Field is still here. And Babe Ruth played here. And there's only two parks left that you can actually say that. Right. And like my dad telling me about the time he saw Nellie Fox and Nellie Fox did something really racist. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah. I saw John rocker pitch once and he was really racist. (laughs) Anyway. So we'll, we'll be talking about some old timey baseball in the next let's get weird podcast. But for now, for Paul and for Juan, our producer on the left coast, uh, this is T mill saying, thank you for listening. And we appreciate you getting weird with us. And final time. Performing back home again in Indiana. Please welcome and sing along with the one, the only, our good friend, Mr. Jim Neighbors. Mm-hmm.